Turn again, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As we work our way through this book, little by little, this morning we'll look at verses 13 to 15. 2 Corinthians 4, 13 to 15. So what do you believe about this? Christianity. Wednesday night we talked about creeds. The word comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. We Christians talk a lot about what we believe. Sometimes it sounds like our political arguments as we get into it with one another over some theological thing of what we believe. Sometimes it sounds more like competing sports fans. We believe this, you believe that, rah, rah for our side. What do we really believe enough that it would make a difference in our life? Or to put it another way, what is different about your life because you believe in Christ? Or even more pointedly, what would it take to make you abandon that belief. Would you give it up for a million dollars? How about a hundred million? Would you give it up to save your life? In our text today, the Apostle Paul is explaining what drives his ministry, what it is that makes him willing to endure all that he endures. And he explained it in terms of what he believes. Let's read it. Verse 13. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Let me suggest two exhortations for us that flow from two things that Paul is saying that he believes here. So the first exhortation would be this. Speak boldly, for Jesus is risen. Speak boldly, for Jesus is risen. Last week, in the, in the verses just before this, we heard the apostle talk a lot about dying, about carrying around in his body the death of Jesus about always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, about death being at work in him in order that life might be at work in the church. I don't know about you, but I find the prospect of death in any form rather foreboding. Funerals are not my favorite events. Especially my own funeral is not something I look forward to. And anything that threatens to move me a few steps in that direction is generally unwelcome. So how can the Apostle Paul, 
intentionally do and say things which threaten his life, which make him more likely to die. Well, he tells us plainly in verse 1, I speak because I believe. Paul's bold proclamation of the gospel, even in the face of death, was based on his creed, what he believed. Or to put it another way, what Paul believed, he knew to be so certainly true that even the prospect of dying could not silence him about. Now actually, Paul here in verse 1 is quoting from Psalm 116, or, or, or the second uh, verse, verse 13. You may see the uh, quotation marks there in verse 13. Psalm uh, 116 is a hymn of thanksgiving for deliverance from death. It goes something like this. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, save me. You, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed. Therefore, I spoke. And so Paul says, in effect, that spirit of faith that I have is like what the psalm writer had. I also believe, like the psalm writer believed, and therefore I speak. So what did the psalm writer believe? Well, the psalm writer believed that in spite of the cords of death entangling him and strangling him, God was still in control. God had not forgotten him. God would not abandon him, would not deliver him over to death. And so he could still trust him and still be faithful, even when admitting he was in deep affliction. And so he spoke boldly in the midst of his trouble. Paul says, I believe like that. But Paul believed with even greater certainty, for he knew more than the psalm writer knew. Look at verse 14. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will raise us with Jesus. God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the gospel which Paul and all Christians proclaim. But God promises to also raise from the dead those who are in Christ, those who trust him for their salvation. Therefore, even in the worst case scenario, if our suffering continues un unremedied all the way to death, as Christ did, we need not be discouraged or give in, for like our Savior, God will raise us from the dead. And so the apostle says, I believe that. Therefore I speak, though it means dying and carrying in my body the dying of Jesus and experiencing death every day in one form or another. I believe that. Therefore I keep proclaiming the gospel. So easy to say we believe in Jesus. We believe he died on the cross and rose again and that we will be raised with him on the last day. Oh, but here's where the rubber meets the road, you see. When we face death, or even when we encounter opposition, or persecution, 
or even when we're simply asked to give our lives away for the sake of the gospel, right there in the face of dying to our own dearest desires, then do we believe? You see, if we, we, you see, we are never free to live and proclaim the gospel with abandon until we are free from the fear of death. As long as the threat of ridicule or harm or even death can make us stop, be silent, we're at the mercy of Christ's enemies. Ah, but when we comprehend something of the certainty of our resurrection with Christ, the certainty of Christ's resurrection and the fact that when we're in him that guarantees us eternal life, then nothing can silence us speaking of him, speaking the gospel. A powerful illustration of this truth comes out of the dark days of oppression in Romania. Joseph Tan, pastor of Second Baptist Church in Oradea, Romania, had fled the country for fear of being persecuted for his faith. Not, not a, a wrong fear. But eventually he became con- convicted that God wanted him to return, and so finally, after a great struggle, he decided he would return, no matter what the cost, and he did. He came back, and he began to boldly proclaim the gospel. Later he wrote of his experience in a periodical co- called Pastoral Renewal. He says, after our return, as I preached uninhibitedly, harassment and arrests came. One day during interrogation, an officer threatened to kill me. Then I said, sir, your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Sir, you know my sermons are all over the country on tapes now. If you kill me, I will be sprinkling them with my blood. Whoever listens to them after that, we'll say, I'd better listen. This man sealed this with his blood. They will speak ten times louder. So go on and kill me. I win the supreme victory then. The officer sent him home. <laughs> then Pastor Ton reflected. That gave me pause. For years I was a Christian who was cautious because I wanted to survive. I had accepted all the restrictions the authorities put on me because I wanted to live. Now I was willing to die, and they wouldn't oblige me. Now I could do whatever I wanted in Romania. For years I wanted to save my life, and I was losing it. Now I was willing to lose it. And I was winning it. I suggest Pastor Ton knew and believed the very same thing the Apostle believed and the thing he sets before us. His example only illustrates this exhortation which the Spirit gives us here that we can speak boldly because Jesus is risen and we will rise with him. Dear people, though none of us want to die, we have to face this Squarely. The Bible says that Christ died in our place and rose from the dead. 
so that the sting of death might be removed forever for us. So that we might be delivered from living in the bondage of fear of dying all the time. So do we believe that? Christians confess that we believe that every time we recite the Apostles' Creed. So why do we fear and cower in fear at the least little opposition? Why do we bristle when God asks us to give our lives away, to change our plans to accommodate his plans, to part with our precious time or our precious money, or to sacrifice our comfort for the sake of someone else? And why is the thought of actually laying down our lives, not even being killed, but just spending them for the sake of the gospel, why is that automatically someone else's job? John Calvin chastised those secret believers whom he calls followers of Nicodemus, who you recall would not speak up, though he believed, but would not speak up for fear of the Jews. Calvin writes, Now let our pretended followers of Nicodemus mark what sort of fiction they contrive for themselves in the place of faith. When they would have faith remain inwardly buried and altogether silent and glory in the fact that they utter during their whole life not a single word of right confession. one I challenge you as I challenge myself the psalm writer and the apostle both said I believe therefore I speak and in Romans 10 the spirit says the same thing to all of us that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead we will be saved for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. You see, this is our calling, to speak boldly, because Jesus is alive, and we will live with him. Then there's a second truth that drives the apostles' ministry, and that makes for a second exhortation for us from this text, and that's this. Give yourself away to bring praise to God. Give yourself away to bring praise to God. You know, it's easy to go through life from one day to the next, just facing each day's challenges and never thinking much about the, the big picture of where we're going and what life's about. And yet, from time to time, someone forces us to think in those big terms, think where our career is headed, to think about how we're raising our family, to think about what kind of preparation we're making for the future, Generally, we don't do very well in those discussions. We're just too accustomed to droning on from day to day and not thinking about the big picture. But most of us understand that without ever thinking about greater things, we probably will face the future unprepared. Well, here in our text, the Spirit calls us to think about the big picture, but to think about things beyond anything that we ever normally think about. For here the Lord calls us to picture not what it will be in our retirement years, but to picture what it will be to stand in the presence of God someday. 
Here he challenges us to consider what are we contributing right now to the eternal praise of our God, to life as it will be in, in eternity. Here God calls us to lift our hearts and minds and think in God's terms about things important to him. And as we do, he calls us to give ourselves away for the sake of praise to him. The Apostle Paul here is telling us what drives his ministry, what keeps him going. If you ask people in vocational ministry what drives them, what keeps it going, they might talk about the paycheck or the benefits or the, the uh, uh, feedback from people and uh, the, 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 their love for the folks in the church or whatever. Paul here calls us to think about it in the largest terms possible. Let, let me reread it. Pick it up in verse 14 and read it down through 15. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Here the apostle shares his passion, both his immediate passion and his ultimate goal. In terms of his immediate goal, Paul says, I do everything for the sake of these believers, you believers in Corinth, who he's writing to. Remember, he's been accused of not caring about them, of ignoring them, but just the opposite is true. It's for them that he labors. It's for them that he puts his life on the line. It's for them that he does without the things that he needs. It's for them that he endures insults and injury. His goal is very simple. When he is raised from the dead, and he stands redeemed in the presence of God, he wants them to all be standing there next to him. And the grace which has been lavished on him to make him what he is, he wants that same grace to be abounding in them. In fact, more and more of them. You see, this man loves these people. Though this is the most troubled church in the New Testament, though these people were perhaps the most fickle in their allegiance to the Apostle Paul, though even as he writes there are opposing factions at work in the church, Paul loves this body of believers. Loves them so much that he wants them to share in everything that he has in Christ. And so he says in verse 15, all of this is for your benefit. He freely gives himself away for them. I must challenge you in regard to this this morning. I know that you love God. Do you love his people? That's hard. I know that you love your little group of believers who think like you think. But do you love those who think you're wrong? I know you want to serve the Lord and bring pleasure to him, but do you care about serving this church and bringing pleasure to these folks? For you see, if you don't, your love for God is a sham. It's like the Pharisees. That's what the Lord says. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. 
If anyone does not love his brother whom he has seen, he cannot love God whom he has not seen. But this is the problem in most every church, isn't it? It's normally not the broken, hurting people who cause dissent and divide a church. No, it's the supposedly mature believers who love God but are willing to trash his church, who speak reverently of the Lord but have no mercy for those who oppose them, who are so certain they're right that they don't need those who disagree. But dear people, this is not the pattern of the apostle nor the pattern of the Lord. Jesus was despised and rejected not because he went around being holier than thou, but because he loved the publicans and the prostitutes and the public sinners. And the Apostle Paul was despised and rejected not because of his love for sound doctrine, but because he was not very eloquent and not very impressive and he was not polished enough. He seemed like a nobody and he loved the church full of nobodies. But that's what true ministry looks like. God calls us to give ourselves away for his little ones and thus to him. That's Paul's immediate goal of his ministry. But his ultimate goal was to multiply then the overflowing praise and thanksgiving given to God by this approach to ministry. Look at verse 15 again. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Here's the ultimate big picture. Paul's immediate goal was to give himself to the believers in Corinth. But why did he want to do that? Because as he did, they would grow in their faith and begin to tell others. And the more people who heard, the more people who would grow in grace. And what does God's grace produce in forgiven, restored sinners? Well, it produces the same thing it produced in Paul. A passion to be faithful and a joyful celebration of praise and thanksgiving. A heart eternally grateful to God. So here Paul shares his ultimate goal of his whole life to multiply his ministry of God's grace in the gospel so that on resurrection all of heaven would be filled with people praising God because God is worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory from every creature. As Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message, more and more grace, more and more people, more and more praise. God heaven summarizes Paul's whole view of this new covenant ministry. He says, through his unveiled boldness, an unveiled encounter with God's surpassing glory is transforming God's people into those who praise his glory. The present experience of God's glory, however, is merely the beginning of the consummation to come. Paul's delight in the manifestation of God's glory is the ultimate reason that he does not lose heart in this ministry. Paul wanted to multiply praise to his God. That's what his life was about. 
Perhaps we can see Paul's passion illustrated when we think about what people do with their money. Most people get money and they turn around and they spend it. Hopefully they have enough. They survive, but they never gain much for the future. But a few people along the way catch sight of the power of compound interest. Money saved earns interest. And then that savings plus the interest earns interest on the whole thing. And that, then that savings plus the interest and the interest on the interest earns even more interest. So that wealth doesn't just add up, it multiplies. So much so that I read this week that if the Native Americans who sold Manhattan for $16 had invested that $16 and received 8% compounded interest, today they could buy back all of Manhattan and have several hundred million dollars left over. It's the difference between just living hand to mouth and investing and multiplying what you're doing. So here the Spirit calls us to invest ourselves in such a way that we multiply. Not in making money to be left to our heirs, that's something that's so short-lived. But in multiplying, compounding the application of the grace of God to broken, hurting people who will in turn share that with other broken, hurting people until a multitude which no one can number will, be, will spend eternity giving thanks and praise to the God of all grace for he is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy of all of these lies. Now that may sound strange to our worldly ears, but that's our calling. To give ourselves away in order to multiply praise and honor to our God for all eternity. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says, that's the chief end of man. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Oh, we Christians talk about what we believe. Sometimes like political arguments and sometimes like sports fans. But what do we believe enough to make a difference in our lives? What do we believe enough to die for? I don't say that lightly. It's an awesome thought. What do I believe enough to die for? Well, that's also what I will believe enough to live for. Well, the Lord has set two things before us here. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and our resurrection with him someday. And the worthiness of God in all of his perfection to receive all the praise and all the glory and all the honor from all of his creatures. Do we believe those things? If so, then speak boldly. For Jesus has risen from the dead. And give yourselves away to God's people. Give yourselves away to the least of his people in order that you might multiply praise to him.
Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we talk about things today that are easy to say, but that are beyond our comprehension and the profound implications. For to talk about what we're willing to die for, Lord, is so uncomfortable. And to talk, Lord, about our spending our whole life for something that's eternal and unseen to us right now. It's more than we can get our minds around. And so we would ask that you, Lord, you who are the author even of our faith, would grant to us faith to believe what you said, to believe the gospel, to grasp something of the greatness of your grace to broken, hurting sinners like us. And what honor is due you for that? Oh Lord, take your word and having planted it in our hearts today, I pray that it would find good soil and that you would grow it, cause it to produce fruit, to produce change, to produce boldness, to produce, Lord, selfless willingness to give ourselves away, to produce praise and honor to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.